Okay. Brother, how are you? I'm well, sir. Thank you very much. Good, good. Good to see you again, Dr. Burlett. And uh, look, I'm, I'm so glad that you could come on the podcast because I'll tell you the feedback from the Great Conversations TV uh, episode we did has been tremendous. A lot of great comments. And uh, so I'm really excited because I, I'm picturing this of one of many, many uh, times that you can come back and uh, and share with us. I think well, I'm actually be... uh, pretty thankful that you even called me back. Oh, no, absolutely. No, I think it's it's just fantastic to have a, a guest of your, um, I, I guess, knowledge and, uh, and just the journey that you've gone through. So, but there are going to be many people tuning into this podcast that didn't perhaps see that that episode which by the way if you're if you're just tuning in i encourage people to either you know check that video out on answers.tv or uh, you can probably find it on youtube or uh, check out the the podcast on spotify or you know wherever you get your your typical podcast but uh to to see that information because it was it was great but yeah we can move forward here and uh, I, I look forward to having you back many many times so thank you for the people that didn't get a chance to see that who is Dr. Dustin Burlett, and uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about you. Well, uh, as you say, my name is Dr. Dustin Burlett. I got a <laughs> PhD from McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. Right. Uh, my first supervisor was Dr. Gus Conkle. My second supervisor was Dr. Mark Boda. Mm -hmm. And my dissertation subject was a rhetorical critical analysis of Noah's flood. So it covered uh, Genesis 6 through 9 right. using uh, that particular methodology. And so what I did was I was trying to understand what was the scribe's intentions to persuade people with respect to a biblical worldview in the flood right so what did the words what were the words meant to communicate to the people it was given to at the time correct yeah not just at the time but also through the ages and right. so how it could be a timeless truth or a timeless capacity to persuade and influence people in a positive direction right now in that sense isn't that what all pastors and all theologians are attempting to do with whatever passage they're they're looking at zero question the whole purpose yeah. of all of scripture is to inspire us to walk in full obedience to god's commands mm -hmm. so what's so interesting about the whole creation evolution debate the whole debate in christianity about genesis 1 to 11 and all these things is here's what i've found now i don't know if you found this but i will listen to a pastor or a Bible professor, um, or a Christian author, and they will wax eloquently about their commitment to the authority of the Word of God and how you have to take it as plainly written, and you know you, you need to really d dig into all that. And yet, the same methodology that they uh, champion in all other areas, when you say, "Well, what about Genesis one to 11 They'll say, "Well, you know," and then there's you know, some typical reasons to kind of get around the plain reading of scripture. Uh, is that something you've come across? Well, you know, it is actually quite interesting that you make mention of that. When it comes to most uh, scholarly work or most academic work, right. the real question is often one of genre. Mm. And so the common maxim or the common principle is that genre triggers reading strategy right and we do this all the time when we go to pick up our mail right you sort through the bills you sort through the <laughs> newspaper clippings yeah you know you automatically sort and identify all of the mail that you receive according to its genre right and then you read that mail according to the genre that it proposes and even within a newspaper you do the same thing you read an obituary different than let's say a help wanted ad right so the real key to interpretation of scripture is what genre is it because if you misidentify the genre 
genre, you're going to misidentify how to read it correctly. Absolutely. Now, you know, you saying that, of course, and you, you've studied scripture far more than many people would. But again, that's not that's not a new concept, is it? I mean, we obviously know that if Jesus is teaching a parable or, you know, some poetic language, uh, you know, in, in different areas of the of the scripture, most average people will identify that. It's not like something we really like, oh, wow, like a, a pastor needs to come along and tell me that, you know, God doesn't have wings. For example, if, if there's a passage describing about him sheltering us or something like. When it says that uh, he covers us with his feathers and his wings, it doesn't mean that God's a great big chicken. Exactly. And yet, you know, this is what I'm seeing from people. Well, you know, genre, we need to really look at what Genesis says. So again, Genesis 1 to 11 for the first 1800 years of Christendom, uh, there seemed to be a vast majority of, for example, the church fathers and the, the reformers and just the average Christian that seemed to understand what genre Genesis 1 to 11 was. It was historical. It was an actual account of God and how he created and, and, and so on. So, do you think this whole genre excuse, I'll call it, because <laughs> I think it's a compromise actually to say it's something other than historical. Um, what, what do you feel that's triggered by? I think that's a great question. When I uh, used to teach my course on uh principles of biblical interpretation mm -hmm. on how to grasp God's word. I use a triangle diagram. Right. And the triangle diagram, the apex or the top point of the triangle is theology because ultimately all scripture is God breathed. And so right. ultimately all of scripture is theology. And the base of that triangle on the one point is literature because all of scripture is handed down to us as literature. And that's where genre comes in. The other base is history, mm -hmm. the events that have transpired in space and time. Right. So when you take history and literature together, the apex is theology. And you need to use those three combinations in order to fully understand the scriptures. Right. Right. Now, when it comes with respect to Genesis, it is often true that many scholars want to make a divide between Genesis 1 through 11 right. and basically from Abraham onward and the rest of the patriarchs. Often what they will say is, well, Genesis 1 through 11 often uses more what's called anthropomorphic language, where we use human-like qualities to describe God. For mm -hmm. instance, God breathed into Adam and he became a living being or a living soul, mm -hmm. or God spoke into existence and the world came to be. So they'll say that's one reason how come Genesis 1 through 11 ought to be identified as a different genre than Genesis 12 through onward, basically mm -hmm. 50. Another reason where many scholars will say that Genesis 1 through 11 ought to be identified as a different genre is because of its uh, extensive use of what would be called ancient Near Eastern culture references. Right. Uh, a person like John Walton would call it the cultural river or the cultural worldview of those particular people. So you have, let's say, the uh, Atrahazi's epic or Utnapishtim or even something as simple as Gilgamesh. And they'll say, look at these parallels or the Sumerian king list. Yep. Look at all these parallels. Look at all of these uh, comparisons and contrasts. Look at, look at some of these language uh, word usages. For instance, in Genesis 6, there's some very unique word references that don't occur very frequently, but that do appear in other ancient Near Eastern languages. Right. They say, oh, these are indicators that we ought to uh, change the genre between Genesis 1 through 11. So two questions that would spring to mind if I'm having a conversation with a brother 
who's bringing up these things is number one, how come no one really saw these, um, these genre issues for the first 1800 years of Christianity until long ages and Darwinian evolution became prominent. And the second thing is, is why would the Holy Spirit be looking around at other um, writings of, of local areas and somehow inspiring, you know, uh, men under the, the Holy Spirit to write things based off of untruths um, that were, you know, paraded around in other cultures? I mean, does that seem... Um, so anyway, those, those are two questions. Perhaps you can, you can bat that one out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can bat that out of the park, but what I can do is I can try to speak a little bit more to this from my own experience mm -hmm. and my research. One of the questions that's often raised with respect to the flood is the question of source material. And right. even in Genesis five, it talks about how this is the book or this is the records of Adam. Right. So it seems as though there was some type of source material Absolutely. that the scribes used. And the big question is whether or not you're going to use a diachronic or a synchronic approach to scripture right. through time. And often uh, you'll hear the words J-E-D-P going oh, yeah. around or a synchronic yeah. approach. Now, the question is when it comes to Genesis and the final form or the canonical form, however you want to put it, Genesis is constructed using a series of what are called Toledoths. Mm -hmm. So these are the generations of or this is the account of. There's no break in the Toledoth structure from Genesis 1 through 11 and onward. In fact, that Toledoth structure frames the entire book of Genesis. So for the people listening that don't understand what that word is, can you explain Toledoth? Well, Toledoth, uh, it comes from Yalad, which means to bear or to generate. Mm -hmm. And what it really means is these are the bearing records. So, so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. Right. That's the Toledoth. It's a genealogical record or it's a familial record. Right. And the book of Genesis is constructed around that framework. So, if the book of Genesis itself does not seem to differentiate between Genesis 1 through 11 right. on the basis of the Toledoth structure, mm -hmm. why ought we to do that. Correct. So that's the, the, the point, the uh, first point I was getting at is why did no one seem to um, be falling all over themselves to try to identify Genesis 1 to 11 as something different than what it plainly seems to indicate uh, prior to that? You know, I, I just wrote an article uh, recently called uh, Revisionist History 101. Uh, people can check it out on our on our uh, website, answersingenesis.org. But um, my wife and I were out uh, antique shopping uh, several years ago now, and I I came across an 1828 Webster's Dictionary. Oh, and old so, school. Yeah, yeah, real old school. It was his uh, his first work, of course. And, and I mean, this is a man who knew something like 23 languages. He was a very intelligent person and put together this um, this dictionary. And so I, I, I bought it, and then I brought it home, and I've, I've just made the article recently. And... When you look through, because I've heard so many Christians say, well, you know, young earth creationism isn't what the church held to throughout history. I mean, you know, there have been many people that that didn't hold to, uh, you know, six-day creation and a young earth and all this kind of stuff. And that was introduced recently. But if you look up the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, you see that Adam and Eve, I'll, I'll read, here's the entry here. Adam, primarily the name of the human species, mankind, appropriately the first man, the progenitor of the human race. Eve is the consort of, of Adam. The flood, this might be of great interest to you. You might want to check it, check this out. Um, 
the flood by way of eminence, the deluge, the great body of water, which inundated the earth in the days of Noah before uh, the men lived to a great age. See the reference to great age that the patriarchs lived, lived that long. Um, the deluge uh, to, to overflow with water, to inundate, to drown the waters, deluged the earth and destroyed the old word world. If you look through the 1828 dictionary, Adam is listed as, as being uh, created in 4,000 BC. It talks about Anno Monday, right? The, 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 the Jewish uh, chronology. And, and, and it just lists it just like if you went to the Answers in Genesis website and, and checked out Genesis 1-11. So I, I used the article to show people, no, this, is, this was common knowledge. I mean, if Webster had come along and he'd been some kind of literary outlier, he would have got caught on this stuff. But this Absolutely. is what the average Christian believed about what the Bible said at the time. No one was challenging Webster and saying, oh, no, no, we don't, we don't believe the earth is young and that God created in six days and that Adam and Eve were real literal people and that there was a global flood. It just wasn't there. As a matter of fact, in the appendices to this book, uh, written by one of his son-in-laws, uh, it goes into Babel and the origin of, uh, of of languages and all that stuff. So anyway, you might want to check And it out. is interesting, Calvin, as well, within an Indo-European framework, uh, a Judeo-Christian worldview would have been prominent all throughout, whether or not one was a Christian or not. It right. would have been uh, very uh, well recognized. So it wouldn't have just been within Christian, let alone evangelical circles. Right, right. Now, going back to Genesis 1 through 11, yes. uh, one of the people who listened to my previous podcast asked yep. for a little bit more information about some specifics with respect to genre mm -hmm. and he asked him if he had ever heard of the vav toll or the wow toll form or you know the basic vav narratives yeah but it is interesting because stephen boyd has done some technical analysis using a linguistic modeling approach to determine the uh propensity of the particular form that separates prose and poetry within scripture mm -hmm. often uh the unit of measurement for poetry is the line and the unit of uh, measurement for a prose is the sentence. Okay. And uh, the common basic formula for the sentences is the Vavik toll. And the prominence of the Vavik tolls within Genesis 1 through 11 disproportionately show evidence that it is meant to be read as historical narrative to the same degree as any other book of Joshua, book of Ruth, book of Kings, book right. of Chronicles, Samuel. But many scholars will want to point, particularly with respect to Genesis 1, about how it's semi-poetical due to the amount of refrains or due to the amount of uh, repetition in the narrative. But what is still interesting to me mm -hmm. is that no matter how one slices it, when you read the New Testament yep. and you read something, let's say, like the book of Jude, mm -hmm. and he says, Enoch, who is the Seventh, seventh from Adam. From Adam. Now, of course, there's a little bit of massaging going on there because you have to include Adam to get to seven. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he didn't say, oh, we recognize that there's a genealogical gap here. He didn't say, you know, exactly. he seems to have read it in such a way as what I have read is what I understand it to be. Correct. You know, you mentioned source material. Um, as far as, you know, Genesis 1 to 11 and perhaps, the, you know, the writers adopting all these things. Isn't, like, is, is the source material of Scripture not the Holy Spirit? Oh, ultimately. I mean, Second <laughs> Timothy 3, uh, well, basically 15 through 17, all Scriptures God breathed. And then you go to the Second Peter verse, you know, exactly. men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. So this kind of punt to, you know, oh, well, there, there's these different narratives going along. You know, the, the to me, it, it's always seemed logical that, of course, there's going to be some similarities of, of things going on, but why isn't the copying done from the, the biblical writers 
outward. It's like the Gilgamesh epic. I mean, this is your wheelhouse, uh, the, the Noah's flood, Noah's flood, Noah's Ark, all that stuff. This was something you, uh, you did your whole PhD on. Um, so, I mean, why, why would the assumption from a Christian be that, oh, we borrowed from somebody else's narrative, which really doesn't make sense if you're going to save the, the, you know, the, the air breathing animals in a cube versus, you know, Noah's Ark's narrative being the source. And then it was copied from somewhere else. Why would a Christian scholar assume the scripture got it? from somewhere else versus the other way around. Well, you know, that is indeed very interesting, but it's also very evident that when you read most of these other literatures or yeah. when you read most of these other epics, their propaganda, there's a very overt uh, political scheme towards what they're trying to do, and they're not ashamed of it. Right. Whereas when you read the Bible, it's also very evident that it also has an objective. Its target is to allow people the opportunity to conform themselves to the creator God's model of authority. Right. To help show them how they ought to relate to one another, how they ought to relate to uh, the world around them, and how they ought to relate to the being who created them. Right. And so ultimately, it is interesting to see how the shaping of the narrative itself influences their decision. Right. So when you say propaganda, um, the Gilgamesh epic, how would you describe that as propaganda from the? Oh, there's attempts to try to authorize different kingships or the attempts oh, okay. to different authorize different, for instance, Marduk as being the god above all gods, right. for instance. Right. And so there's uh, different tools or the different uh, attempts to justify what has already been in existence. Right. You know, it's always amazed me, uh, you know, growing up with an atheistic background, coming to Christ, um, reading the Bible for the first time, um, you know, seriously at all. And that whole concept of the renewing of your mind. When I started reading the Bible, um, I wasn't educated enough because I didn't have any Christian fellowship to start in the book of John or anything like that. It was a book. So I opened up the first pages and there it was, you know, God created in six days, rested on the seventh. It, there was no indication, like my mind didn't go, oh, well, these must be long ages and this must be a poetic genre. It didn't do that. I just went, I went from literally saying, well, I don't believe there is a God to, oh, this is how God created. And it seemed very plain to me. And so when I finally got integrated into churches and, and, and so on, and finally met Christians who didn't believe that narrative, it, it just seemed to amaze me because what do you actually give up if you add millions of years to the Bible? Like th 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 there seems to be in academia and you would know this because this is more your world than mine, but you know, there's all, it, it seems like, well, let's discuss this and let's throw out this idea and well, let's, let's try this and let's try that but it's like this always learning never coming to an understanding of what, what's going on I, I see that in academia a lot it's like well let's try this idea well what about this idea what do you feel you give up when you start adding things like millions of years in evolution to the bible well you know it is interesting that when it comes to academia the magic is often the method okay like the method is the magic and so if you're going to use a particular approach it's going to influence how you would interpret the text right it's kind of like when you go fishing whatever size of holes you have in your net is going to determine the size of fish that you gotcha catch. yeah yeah so it is interesting because oftentimes what i find is irrespective of what nuances or what texture you might be able to appropriate from the text depending upon your methodology right anything apart from what i would consider to be a historical grammatical interpretation of scripture mm -hmm. seems to do an injustice to the way that the text intends to be read 
Okay. So in order to appropriately respond and receive the message of Scripture, mm -hmm. you at least have to take it as it desires to be read. Right. And that's the way we take all literature, is it not? Or even this conversation right now. You know, if I say to you, uh, wow, you're wearing a black jacket and you in reinterpret that to mean that uh, I had uh, eggs for breakfast. I mean, there is just this common understanding. And that's why, you know, Answers in Genesis, we always use the phrase, the plain reading of Scripture. Because sometimes you'll or say... a common sense reading of Scripture. Yeah, because if you say things like, well, it's 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 literal. You know, we take it as a literal Genesis, then they then you get the attack. Well, do you take everything literally? Well, of course not. We well, take I, it, as you mentioned, the historical, literal, grammatical I, uh, way. I had a student ask me, so what does it mean that God spoke the world into existence? And I said, well, it is interesting because you mentioned the book of John mm -hmm. about how God did speak. He is a spirit, and yet he spoke, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Yeah. And what did some people say? Oh, it's just thunder. It is very interesting that a God who is spirit can yep. speak. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you, you hear all sorts of things like I've had people say, well, you know, how could, um, you know, how could there be light if the sun wasn't created in, on, until day four? And they, they seem to kind of downplay the miraculous aspects. Like what, I, if you can't believe that God can create out of nothing, speak everything into existence in six literal days. But you believe that dead people come back to life and people walk on water when it's not frozen and axe heads float and that snakes talk. And that, I, I just I've always struggled with with Christians that are willing to say, well, I believe in this part of the supernatural. But this part over here and it, the punt is always that I've found is to science, because once I dig deep enough into why they're coming up with all these kind of interpretations that just I mean, let's let's face it. You, you would know this as well as I. Um, things like gap theory, things like day-age theory, things like progressive creation, things like the framework hypothesis, things like theistic evolution, these weren't even available in the theological marketplace up until, let's say, 200 years ago. I mean, you, you don't look into the literature and find this stuff readily. So it seems so obvious to me that once millions of years started to be established in the, in the secular world, then... The Christian church said, oh, how, how do we fit this in here? And then they had to go looking for this stuff that nobody had ever seen before, which to me means it's not obvious. It, it's just not there. And one of the challenges that is often aroused through these readings is that once you have begun to do that, how do you comport it to other parts of Scripture that right. seem to deny those? Mm. So, for instance, when it says in the book of Hebrews that Noah, in faith, built the boat, built the ark. Right not having yet seen what God was to do. Right. Well, a question that arises in my mind is, let's say it's a local flood, or let's say it's a, a mere inundation of such and such a place. Right. Wouldn't Noah have already seen that? Hmm. What was so unique that Noah hadn't seen Right. that was so noteworthy to the author of the book of Hebrews? Absolutely. Well, does it not, I mean, this was your dissertation right does it not seem like a silly story okay we're going to have a local flood but i want you to take birds on board why, why do you need birds on board they're just going to fly to where there's this open ground like it just it's always seemed so silly to me and then when you see the way the out, outside world seems to to um, react to compromising christians it doesn't seem to help i i, I can tell people straight up when when i was uh, a non-christian 
being approached by Christians uh, when I was younger. And they would say to me, you know, hey, do you want to come to my Bible study or something like that? And if they kept persisting and I attacked them and I would I would hit them with Genesis, it just seemed to be a reactionary thing. Well, you believe this story about some guy got two of every animal on a boat? How, how big was that boat when there's hard, millions hard, of hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when they, well, most of them didn't have an answer, but for the ones who said things like, well, you know, this is probably just a, a, a teaching story. I'd be like, well, this story about the dead guy coming back to life is probably just a teaching story. Like it, it never how impressed can, me. <laughs> how can a person be so selective in their interpretation of scripture to right. say this particular part only applies here, but this doesn't. And it does seem to be the case that Genesis one through 11 in particular mm -hmm. are often interpreted or reinterpreted or blocked off or set aside in a particularly unique way as mm -hmm. compared to the rest of scripture yeah. due to in my opinion a capitulation to the mainstream science right and you brought up a great point the new testament writers i mean you know um when 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 peter or when jesus himself you know quotes and says well you know have you not read that in the beginning god created male and female when Jesus himself is quoting Genesis as literal and and, and we hear all these, you know, there, there was eight people rescued on the ark and all of these, Peter, these yeah. things, right? Um, or as it will be in the days of Noah, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Right, which means that the entire world's going to be judged. So was it a local judgment back then? And then it's going to be like, you've got all these goofy kind of things to take into account. So. It, it's like a it's like a domino effect. You hit this and it goes all the way down. If you're telling me that God used evolution to create, He used billions of years of death and suffering and and extinction and all this kind of stuff, and then the Scripture says that He is one day going to restore the world to the way it was in the beginning. To what end? What? How are we even going to know? Because we live in a world of death and suffering now. If that's the way you said He created it, so it. it is all encompassing and i think a lot of christians haven't really thought these things through they just go well you know maybe god used evolution or well maybe god used millions of years but they don't follow the the actual logical train of thought where atheists often have you know it is interesting they make mention of that when i uh taught my course on biblical interpretation on grasping right. god's word i used a simple model the first step is to grasp god's word in their town. What did it mean to them and the original audience? Right. After that, you got to use what's called uh, marking the division in time. So it's as if there's a river or a divide between our world and their world. You know, a difference in language, often a difference right. in time, often a difference in covenant, because even in the New Testament, when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, they're under a different covenant. Right. The, the yep. inauguration of the new covenant. And then, of course, differences in culture. But in order to bridge that divide, you have to cross the principal eyes and bridge. But once you've done that, you've got to consult the biblical map. And I believe that that is the critical area. If you do not run that grid of interpretation through the sum total of scripture, right. what will often happen is that oftentimes your theology will fall short in mm -hmm. some area because you have failed to account for this or that or the other thing, right. particularly with respect to the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Yeah. I mean, even in my Christian walk, you know, there are certain theological um, grids or, or whatever that I've explored. And I find actually it's quite, quite similar to the way scientists conduct experiments, right? You get a hypothesis, you get a, a concept and you travel down this road and you do experiments and your stuff and you test and test. And then finally you go, oh, that, 
that's not working. You've got to you've got to actually bring it back to the baseline. And I I believe theology is is, is a similar way. There are theological uh, stances that I held to you know let's say five years into my Christian walk that I've abandoned because as I grew more and more in my knowledge of Scripture and what God's word meant, I, oh yeah, well this verse here contradicts this. I mean that's the way logic works because contradictions are lies and God is not a man that he should lie. And so that's why there's no contradictions in scripture, right? And if, if you think you've found one, you're wrong, not God. And there is a way to explain those things. But if you're ever going down a theological model where you arrive at an uh, illogical conclusion, you better back up and, and, and retrace your steps to where you, you got off track. Well, what I often find is let's imagine mm -hmm. if God did it differently. Right. Why didn't he explain it in a different way? Absolutely, brother. I mean, I've had people say, well, you know, the, the, the Jews, they, they were just, you know, they were just simple people. They wouldn't have understand the, the sophisticated story of evolution. Well, I'm sorry, but I can explain this to kindergartners and they do it in our state run school system. Why couldn't God have just said in the beginning, God created the first living thing. And that first living thing changed slowly over millions of years and became all the living things that have ever been. I said that sentence in about five seconds. And people understood it. People understood it. They weren't confused. And if God had written that out, we all would have gone, oh, I get it. Well, in no small ways, Kelvin, I'm becoming increasingly persuaded that when one reads, that, mm -hmm. well, see, one of my professors used to say, uh, this is, he grew up in Saskatchewan. And right. It's often the case that people like to make fun of Saskatchewan words. <laughs> he you. says, this is what a big bane is. A big bane is something... Uh, well, he says, what is a black hole? A black hole is something that I hit with my car that causes a big bang. <laughs> but the story of the big bang, the more that one, I believe, reads it right. and uh, studies it and looks at it, it really is a meta narrative. Mm -hmm. It is story. not so much science so much as it is philosophy and theology. And it is often the case that atheists are perceived as being worldview less mm -hmm. or uh, philosophy less or theology less, but they don't realize, or at least it doesn't seem to be explained as clearly, that all of their assertions and all of their assumptions do have great theological ramifications and our philosophy and our theology. And the merit Meta narrative of the Big Bang is, in fact, in direct and I believe stark contrast to the meta narrative as Scripture wants to express it. I, I believe so as well. I think it's a point by point rebuttal of the need for a Creator God. So, example, where'd the universe come from? That's cosmological evolution. Big Bang, billions of years ago, hydrogen starts to coalesce, stars and galaxies form. Where'd the Earth come from? Earth's a hot molten blob. It's hurtling through space, gradually cools down, gets covered in about 70% water. Part of geological evolution would be the rock layers we see, but they contain fossils, which are dead things. Okay, well, in order to get dead things, you need live things. So where'd life come from? Oh, well, that's chemical evolution. Some warm, soupy ponds, some non-living chemicals came together, formed a first life form. Where'd we get the biodiversity on the planet? That's uh, biological evolution through natural selection, you know, uh, mutations. One kind gradually morphs into another. Where did people come from? Well, finally, some ape-like humans get bigger brains, and here we are talking about it. You know, you mentioned bigger brains, but it is often the case, in my opinion, that many of the people who espouse a deep-seated affirmation of evolution don't so much have big brains, but narrow-minded. <laughs> yeah. And the challenge that I find is finding a way to create an expanse 
where there's an opportunity to dialogue more effectively because right. once a person has become persuaded that this is the way that it was done, almost every evidence that is contradictory to that can be uh, shuffled aside. Selected out, yeah. So the, the, the concept of evolution is a meta narrative. It's not just Big Bang. It's not just, you know, we evolved from apes. It's not just we, you know, it's the entire thing. I mean, everything I just said, it, it, where, where's God needed in that process? Absolutely nowhere. So when Christians adopt that worldview, they're actually supporting what atheists have to believe, right? But you're right. Um, this, this whole concept of, you know, I'm an atheist and I'm a free thinker and I'm not, you know, it's like, no, you, you live in a little box called naturalism. And you yes. don't think outside that box. You, you've got a, a very, very narrow spectrum. See, I love science. I mean, I've worked with scientists for, for years now. I've worked with the, the theologians. I love philosophy. I love linear thinking. I love all that stuff. But I'm also open to the supernatural. So I, I can account for both camps. They live in one little one called naturalism, and they don't think outside that box. And it is so interesting because throughout all of human history, mm -hmm. only the fools believe that there is no God. Absolutely. Throughout all of human culture, they have always sought to worship a deity or a being that is higher than themselves. Yep. The whole concept of naturalism is completely antithetical to almost all of human culture and society. Well, Sir Isaac Newton, actually, one of my favorite quotes from him is he said, atheism never had many professors because of, uh, he said something to the effect of how odious and and basically non-intellectual it was. The concept of things coming from nowhere uh, or, or putting themselves abiogenesis. together. Abiogenesis. And yeah, yeah, it is so interesting that abiogenesis is still touted as the number one thing. Well, you know, you got panspermia. Well, where did that come from? You know, <laughs> aliens zapping. It does, it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's so true. Um, years ago, I was asked, the, 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 do you remember the bus campaign the atheists had? It started with uh, Richard Dawkins in the in, in the UK. You know, there's probably no God, so relax and enjoy your life, which I thought was quite an interesting statement. Like, as if, is that what the problem is? You know, as if, if believe God, in God is some kind of uh, holding a magnifying glass, uh, zapping the ants. Yeah, whack-a-mole. Like, he's going to smack you if you do bad things, right? Um, we all do bad things. Um and so that came to Toronto, actually, that bus campaign. And so there was uh, the local atheist group down down in Toronto, and they they were having a panel, you know, and they they wanted a Christian fundamentalist, and they wanted a, uh, I think they had a Jewish person there, and then one of the atheists. You, know, and you they mentioned went, fundamentalist. It has become increasingly more difficult to differentiate what an evangelical is from a fundamentalist. <laughs> right. It's so true. Yeah. So actually, my friend Joe Boot, uh, he was invited to be the Christian uh, spokesperson, and, and he was busy, and he said- Good choice. Yeah. yeah he, he phoned me up, and he said, oh, mate, do you want to go down and be on the panel? <laughs> in Joe's voice. And I said, sure. So I went down there. And as far as my, uh, as I know, I was the only Christian except for one other fella in the audience at the time. And so they were asking us about their campaign and they finally got to me and I said, look, I don't, I don't care what you do. If you want to spend money on a bus campaign, great. Maybe it'll get people thinking about God more. And then afterwards they had a Q and A time. Well, there was about 40, 50 people in the audience and every gun started being leveled on me and they started ripping it and stuff. And, um, you know, I'm in this atheist hall, right? And they've got free, free thought and all these posters up and free thinking and all the stuff and Christopher Hitchens and all the atheistic, you know, um, literature and stuff. And so I'd, I'd given a couple of responses to some questions and this gentleman stood up and he, he announced himself as a biology professor and, uh, you know, with his credentials and so on. And I, Okay. And he said, you know, I've been studying evolution for 30 years. 
don't you think it offends me when you sit there and tell me you don't believe in evolution? The intolerance of tolerance, correct? I, I, I looked around and I looked at him and I don't speak, usually speak, you know, quite this um, forthrightly, but I thought it was appropriate. And I said, sir, considering the fact that I was invited here for the express purpose of giving an opposite view or an alternate viewpoint, I said, I think it's rather pathetic that you would stand up in, a, in front of this crowd and actually say that to me. And he kind of got this embarrassed look on his face. And I looked around and people were starting, because they realized, wait a second. It seems like a very obtuse statement. Of course, you're supposed to be open-minded and you're offended that I don't agree with your worldview. So, you know, we had a great dialogue. As a matter of fact, at the end of the night, I had several atheists approach and they were like, we should get you back. The, you know, blah, blah. They didn't agree with, with my stance. Um, by the way, I was never invited back. But anyway. You were saying that crack in, in the person's mentality. What I believe that crack is, is the answers in Genesis approach. Uh, and it's not just an answers in Genesis approach because we've got statements from atheists and stuff that will express this, that what people think is science is solid science, like the type of science that produced that microphone that's in front of you and, you know, uh, gets us medical technology and all those types of things in our cars is not the same type of science as what evolution holds no. to. It's his historical science. You Operational can't, science, yes. historical science. That's right. Uh, philosophical naturalism versus methodological naturalism. Correct, correct. So what I've found is the most effective way, and I think it was the same thing for me, and I think uh, we do quite well, is showing somebody, okay, this is your worldview, great, but see these evidences. These seem to contradict your, your worldview and let them know. And did you notice that this is a historical narrative? It's not an actual repeatable, observable, operational scientific experiment. Like, you know, I'll often say, what type of repeatable, observable test could you set up in a laboratory showing me ape-like creatures turning into people? There isn't one. If you believe that happened in the past, you believe it on faith because you've never observed it. So I think that's actually the wedge into people's minds to get them open-minded. It is interesting because uh, one of Ken Ham's things that he often says is, were you there? Right. Now, a lot of people would like to say, well, no, and you weren't either. Right. But one of the things that we do have is we have a witness who wishes to speak as though he were there. Mm -hmm. And the witness, of course, is scripture to right. say, this is how I want you to understand the beginnings. This is how right. I want you to understand the origins. And so we may not have been there, but we have someone who wishes to understand how the past has happened. Right. We, we, we have the one who was there, who doesn't lie, who gave us revelation from his holy word as to how that narrative went down. And so why wouldn't I trust that with the same way that I trust, you know, when the New Testament says that Jesus died and he, 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 he was in the grave for three days and he rose again. And if I put my faith and trust in him, that he pays the penalty for sin that I know I've committed. What I, I have never, brother, been able to understand the disjunct in in my fellow Christians' minds where they're able to separate those concepts. It, it's just mind-boggling to me. It is very interesting because the more that one begins to study in academic literature and uh, to go back to the ancient sources, there's something called the hermeneutics of suspicion mm -hmm. versus the hermeneutics of affirmation. Right. It's almost like innocent until proven guilty versus guilty until proven innocent. Right. In almost every instance, when a piece of literature arises, it is deemed to be innocent 
until proven guilty. Right. But oftentimes when it comes to the scriptures, it is declared guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, I've noticed this. Uh, let, let, let me give you a very practical example of, of nailing down exactly what you said. I've noticed over 20 years of lecturing on this subject now that there's two different approaches I get from Christians when they ask me questions in a Q&A. One type of question questioning is very much like the scripture. Come, let us reason together. I mean, there is no problem with asking questions, trying to div- how do I explain this all well, this the stuff? difference between a skeptic and a critic, really. Exactly. So you'll hear you'll hear it in the intonation of their voice. One person will go, "Well, can you explain how he could have gotten all of the animals on the ark? And you can tell it's a genuine heart. Like, they just don't know. Like, tell me how. They're thinking, did God get millions of species of animals on and the ark? And it's so interesting to speak to that issue. Yeah. Uh, I'm reviewing John Golden Gay's new commentary in the Baker series, right. and he uses the term species for uh, basically the word that we would often call kind, mean, right. M-I-N. Yeah. Yeah. Well, species is not a kind. Of course. And yeah. to make that kind of what I would call a blunder actually causes a great imposition on the text because it puts a person in a very awkward position. Does it not also reveal the fact that they're not going to creationist sources and actually looking into what we actually say? Mm-hmm. They're throwing out straw men. We've dealt with this so many times. There's a difference between a kind and species. And so, Barominology. That's right. And so you hear those questions from Christians and they're sincere. How do I explain this? I don't know. And so you give them an answer and they're so happy. They're like, oh, this is great. And yet I get this from same audience. I'll get another person, but they'll ask it differently. Well, how could he put two of every animal on the, and you can hear this, this skeptical, smug, smug, like, and, and they're talking about the word of God. I mean, it's, it, how it would be the same thing as if somebody said, I'm a professing Christian. Well, how could Jesus die and rise again? Like you don't hear Christians say that, but you hear that same smarmy, questioning, doubting, scathing kind of attack. And they're talking Genesis 1 to 11. I'm always looking at them like, brother, well, sister, this is the word of God we're talking about. In no small ways to quote uh, King James, yea, hath God said, mm. or did God really say? Yep. And, well, yes, God has spoken, and he's spoken to us through his word. That's right. And the word, as it is written, seems to indicate these things. Now, where does the problem lie? If there are reasonable answers to some of these questions, for instance, if the average size of an animal is, let's say, a sheep, there's some reasonable answers to how to fit uh, different kinds. And one of the things that did impress me at the Ark Encounter is how much research went into determining the kinds, particularly with respect to bats. Yeah. I was blown away by the specificity and technicality details that they used. But- Here's the problem. To certain individuals, it won't matter what answer you throw out there. Right. It will be insufficient. Mm-hmm. They will keep moving the target. Right. Yeah, that's because, and in my humble opinion, that's because I think this is a spiritual situation, not just there's, an informational situation. There is no question in my mind that we are not against flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. I believe this, and scriptures, I believe, would testify to this that the enemy, the evil one, is a liar and the father of lies. Absolutely. And one of the things that impressed me at the Creation Museum was how the serpent in the tree was depicted as a dragon Mm. to get that biblical theological message of the serpent from Genesis 3 and the dragon from Revelation. Right. He didn't look like a snake. Yeah. He looked like a dragon. Yeah. But 
in the book of John, it is written, because you keep wanting to go back to the scriptures, and this is exactly what it's about. Jesus said, I have come. And it's I am, if I'm not mistaken, it's the only instance where he states explicitly. He says, you know, the Son of Man came not to uh, be served, but to serve. But this right. is one of the unique scenes. For this reason I came into the world, to testify of the truth. Mm. See, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the way to life is through the truth. Mm. When Jesus says, I have come to testify of the truth, that is a bold declaration. Absolutely. Well, listen, brother, I'm just going to take a short break here and we're going to come back and talk more about the cost of compromise, what you actually give up if you give up a plain reading of Genesis. So just hold on for one second. Okay, we're back here. Uh, Dustin, I want to read you a quote from a man named Ian Barber. He's a professor emeritus at Carl Carlton College. And he actually received the 1999 Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. We were talking about the cost of compromise because I see a lot of Christian students, for example, and you've you've gone down this path. Maybe we can explore it again. Where you go off to Bible college and all of a sudden you're in a sense at the mercy of whatever professor you get. I mean, he's and he's gonna start teaching or whatever she. or she, whatever, whatever they believe. And so this, this And often without apology. Yeah. And often without accommodation. Right. And so you're there and all of a sudden, and I've heard this from so many, you know, students that, you know, uh, maybe took in creation presentations, et cetera. And then they go to a, 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 you know, university or whatever and a Bible college in seventy, And well, this is a godly Christian man and, and they're wonderful people. And, and, you know, they're just so godly and yet they hold evolution or something like that. Now, again, we've always made the statement that of course you can be a Christian and believe it, that God used evolution. We just don't think you're a consistent Christian, but that's not a litmus test for whether you're saved or not. However, I want to read you this quote because I think a lot of these students don't think through, okay, what do I give up if I start believing in millions of years and evolution? That's why God created. So here's what he said. You simply can't any longer say as traditional Christians. Now, notice that he's considering himself a traditional Christian by saying it this way. You simply can't any long, longer say as traditional Christians that death was God's punishment for sin. Death was around long before human beings. Death is a necessary aspect of an evolutionary world. One generation has to die for new generations to come into being. And in a way, it's more satisfying than to see it as a sort of arbitrary punishment that God imposed on our primeval paradise what would one say to the idea that in the end ultimately oh death where's your sting absolutely you see i don't think enough students though think this through he has thought it through if god used evolution then there was death around long before adam's sin so the wages of sin isn't death Jesus came to pay the penalty for sin. I mean, you start unraveling the entire gospel. And yet this, I'm sure if you sat down with this man, he would say, look, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm just following the evidence. And, and that means that there was death before. So, so what about the restoration? What's God going to restore the world to? Or what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life? Right. If in fact death is part of what progresses life, then why would not death be perceived not as an enemy, but as an ally, as Absolutely. a tool? Exactly. Because death was the ally for millions of years. That's why God created our, our species, right? Well, was it not the fact that Paul wrote, death reigned 
through Adam mm. until the time of Christ. Death reigned. Now, many people would want to say that Paul was speaking as a Second Temple Jew, you yeah. know, Second Temple Judaism. And there's lots of indications that Paul uses uh, ancient traditions, mm -hmm. such as the naming of the magicians in yep. Exodus. But when he creates his construct of the first man, Adam, and the last man, Christ, yep. to say that that is the root of the gospel is simply an accommodation to Second Temple Judaism is a very large pill to swallow. Absolutely, because, <laughs> because they didn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It's just incredible. You know, I've heard you say the phrase that this whole concept of um, Near Eastern influence, it, it's like this magic wand that that uh you know many um many theologians will use it's like this big stick right that they use to just club uh young earth creation with it so i want you to speak to this more because you are an expert in this area um i think people should uh, should respect the, the you know just just what you've gone through the, the amount of study you've done what do you say how, how would you say we should get equipped as young earth uh, creationist believers to be able to counteract this big stick that they're throwing at us well i do wish to qualify the statement i'm an expert um i cannot read cuneiform literature by sight and i have no formal training in akkadian or ugaritic right however i can say this when it comes to the bible among the myths, what is often the case is that people will say, oh, look at the comparisons and the contrast between the scriptures and these ancient Near Eastern uh, epics or however you want to put it. Right, narratives, yeah. But what they will often say is that biblical cosmology is often the same as ancient Near Eastern cosmology, and it will often come down to what happened on day two. Okay. So they'll talk about the Rakia. And they'll often want to call it, let's say, the firmament. Mm -hmm. And they'll say that it's a solid dome structure. Right. And they'll point to some poetic references in Job or some poetic references in other places of Scripture. Right. Where it seems as though God stretched out a hard, metallic-like surface mm -hmm. in order to create what we would call the sky and the separation of the waters above from the waters below. Right. And what will often be the case is they will say, well, what? If one were to read these scriptures, what would come up with is a three-tiered universe. Uh, you got God on his throne mm -hmm. sitting above the Mavul, uh, the, the waters of the flood. And then you got the pillars that support the foundations of the earth. And then you got the Sheol and the underground. Right. And all of this seems to be not an accurate reflection of what our actual world is, the fusion of horizons, right. but more an accommodation to an ancient Near Eastern cosmology. And so if you look at Egyptian cosmology, you've got the sky and it's spread out. And then you've got an air god and a sky god. And mm -hmm. then you've got an earth god. And they'll say, see, it's very, very similar in its framework. It's very, very similar in its... Uh, worldview. However, when one looks at the flood narrative, it is very interesting because when the great god Marduk chose to uh, create the world, he took one particular god. There was a battle between a saltwater god and a freshwater god and all these different things, and he tore this one god in half, and with half of it, he made the sky above. I remember with reading this. Yeah, yes. he made the waters above, and he made the waters below. But what is interesting is that he was so afraid that the sky was going to fall that he stationed guards to keep an eye on it. <laughs> and yet in the scriptures, God said explicitly that I will do this 
And he said on this day that the floodwaters came, he never once was afraid that the sky was going to fall. And when you read the epics of the ancients, the gods themselves were so afraid of the flood. They themselves were terrified. And yet God was the one who controlled the opening of the floodgates of heaven mm -hmm. and the fountains of the great deep. The sovereignty of God over the cosmos was to such an infinitely high degree that the world view of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament, is directly antithetical to anything of ancient Eurasian culture. And I am so persuaded that that worldview, that God himself is outside of nature, that God himself is directly in control and sovereign over all of creation, and that the material world that we see is not part of a material, uh, that the material world that we see is not part of an immaterial spiritual reality, but is in, of a, uh, in and of itself something different. That is direct evidence of the supernatural revelation of God, that God himself revealed the true nature of reality in his word, because no ancient Near Eastern person could have ever conceived of a world that the Hebrew scriptures indicate to. So comparing the narratives, that's that's one way of, in a sense, debunking their um, their application of these things. To, to step even back before that, like, what have you heard people's justification for a belief that somehow the writers of scripture would look to other narratives? I, I, I've never understood that that kind of reasoning. Why? why? I mean, God's inspiring you to write why do we think that God inspired the authors of Scripture to run around, find out what other narratives are, and then somehow co-opt or slightly change them to make it? I, I've never understood that reasoning. I'm not sure if I would be able to explain that, <laughs> Kelvin. But what I can seem to speak to is the fact that, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 27.1, right. it talks about this particular serpent-like creature, and it uses three adjectives. You know, it's the writhing one. It's the coiling one. It's all these things. Well, we have ancient Near Eastern evidence from Ugarit about the Lotan creature, uh, the sea or the dragon. Mm -hmm. And it's often the case that in scriptures— the uh, nations that are directly antithetical to God and his people, whether it's Egypt or if you read the Septuagint version of Esther, you know, you got King Herod, you know, and all these different ones are depicted as dragon-like creatures. While it's very similar to ancient years and culture, but what they are trying to do is we have this worship song and it's our God is greater. Yeah. Our God is higher. No, uh, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Yep. God, you are higher than any other. Any other what? Right. Any other God. And what the scriptures seem to indicate is, hey, you have heard of the Baal, the one who has thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. You've heard of him. Don't worship him because we serve the God who actually created the rains and is directly sovereign over them. Don't worship the Baal. Right. And if Baal can speak, well, let him. That's what the whole prophet Elijah does. Or you have heard of the great gods, and I, I'm here to tell you, don't worship them, and our God is sovereign and greater over them. So what I see in Scripture is not so much a polemic against these ancient Near Eastern mythologies, mm -hmm. but a leaning into their world. You have heard it said— but I tell you, it's a recorrection of a distorted image. It's a recorrection of a faulty worldview so that people can understand 
what true reality is. Right. It sets the bar. It's not, um, it's the plumb line. It's the plumb there line. There was no, no other plumb line that God said, okay, well, see that over there. Then we're going to, we're going to co-op that and we might change it a little bit. And then we're going to put it into scripture and that's going to be, you know, and then somehow over the last 200 years, um, our academics have now determined that it, it went the other way around. It just well, seems off kilter to me. It is interesting. There is no question at all that when God speaks to a people, he has to accommodate himself in at least some formal ways right. to their language and to their culture. But that does not mean that he does not go about correcting things that are false right. or correcting things that are misrepresentatives of his world or of his nature. But it is interesting because even within the last hundred years, we've gotten the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. And so that opened up huge awareness of textual transmission right, materials. Right. And so you got the 40-foot scroll of Isaiah that testifies to another uh, uh, medieval manuscript that's almost 1,500 years later. And you can see the correspondence yep. between the two. And yet in the last 200 years, we've cracked the Rosetta Stone, yep. which of course opened up new awareness and understandings of well. And then of course, we've gotten new understandings through uh, the tablets of all these different languages that weren't accessible. So sometimes what I find is I use this one textbook called Reading Genesis 1 and 2. And one of the authors says, you know, if you can't find an early church father, a medieval theologian, or a modern contemporary scholar, you're probably wrong. One of the challenges that I find with that argument is most of those persons didn't have access to the same tablets or the same manuscripts that we have today. Right. So let's say if St. Augustine had access to an Ugaritic tablet, how might that formulate or influence his theology or how he would respond? Mm -hmm. Well, it is true that some of the reasonings or some of the accommodations that seem to be happening within scholarship is because we have access to new documents and new right. material that simply weren't available. However, the challenge that I am finding is the idea that the Hebrew people, it might be one thing to say that the Hebrew people had the same worldview as their contemporaries. Right. It's another thing altogether to say that the scriptures have the same worldview or interpretive framework as the ancient Near Eastern well, This is the smearing that I see, because you're right. You know, let's say this church father had access to this, it might have influenced him. But you're talking we're talking about a person here. No talking matter how learned, no matter how influential they're a person. What we're talking about here is the Holy Spirit. It really boils down that, to one's understanding of what it means to have inspired scripture now peter ends has gotten a lot of flack for inspiration and incarnation kenton sparks as well god's word uh human words or there's another right. volume that's very similar as well but what it really boils down to is how human is the word of god right, right. or how divine is the word of god exactly i think that's really what it comes down to do you believe and that goes back to everything we've you know we've ever said did god really say if you can show me one part of scripture where god did not inspire that and it came out the exact way he wanted it to be as a matter of fact jesus even said i've only spoken what the father told me to speak so when i hear you know theistic evolutionists and they and i've I, i've actually heard it to the point in my my belief it's it's heresy where some um, of the biologist contributors have actually said, well, yeah, of course Peter believed this, and of course Jesus believed that, but in their humanness, they erred. Well, if you're going to tell me that Jesus, who only spoke what the Father told him to do, erred, as in told wrong things, falsehoods, I'm, I'm sorry, you've, you've crossed the line that I'm, I'm super willing, just not willing to take, because you're, you're right that 
you know, even Paul, we, we see Paul accommodating the culture of the day, right? He goes to Greece. Uh, Mars Hill, let's say. Exactly. Uh, the altar to the unknown God. Exactly. You're and he's very trying to testify. People. Yeah, yeah. I want to tell you about this God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. One blood. Right. He, he, he accommodated them. Okay. He understood. Oh, wait a sec. They've only got a certain amount of knowledge. So I need to weave the gospel into what they currently understand so that I can lead them to a true understanding of knowledge. But he didn't change what what had actually happened or scripture said or what Jesus had done or what the, the Old Testament, he didn't, he didn't change it at all. Will you permit me to offer what might be considered as a digression at first until you sure, fully understand yeah, the story? Yeah. When I was a Bible college teacher, one of the courses that was handed to me was on what we would call modern cults. Okay. It was on Jehovah Witnesses and uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons. That Mormons, was predominantly yeah. what the course was about. And uh, I became very good friends with a lot of Mormons, actually. It was mm -hmm. interesting because one day I was walking to the Tasty Freeze. <laughs> Not actually the Tasty Freeze, but I was walking to the Tasty Freeze, and I saw a bunch of people dressed like I was. Right. And, you know, I needed to strike up a conversation with them. Because they had little badges that said elder. And I said, you know, my condolences on your loss. And they said, oh, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you're dressed like this. Obviously, you've just been to a funeral. And they said, oh, no, we're missionaries. Right. I said, well, tell me more. Now, remember, I was teaching a course on the right. subject. And I said, well, why don't I come by your house? And so I did. Now, it ended up that we got such a good relationship that I actually uh, attended some of the baptism services wow. and dedication services. Um, I even got to speak at their place of worship wow. to their elders quorum. There was around 80 people there and they gave me what's called a quad. Um, they have more than one scripture right? Yeah, and yeah. they add to it. So you got, you know, the pearl of great price and other things yeah, yeah. and it's leather bound. It's got my name in gold foil. <laughs> wow. And one day I was going to the Christian bookstore and it's so funny because at that time my kids wanted to go to the toy store. And so they're very in close proximity to each other. And I came out and there's some Mormons walking on the street. And then I said, oh, my wife's name is Rebecca. I said, Rebecca, I think I better talk to these guys just for a minute. So you go to the toy store. And uh, I'll talk with him briefly. And so I crossed the street and I said, hi, my name is Dustin Burlett and you are, and they said, yeah, and we've heard about you and we can't wait to come to your house tonight. Wow. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I remember one day I was getting a little fed up. It doesn't often happen in the way that I would like it to, but I got a little fed up and I told them, I said, you know what? I'm persuaded that you've drank the Kool-Aid and it caused them some grief. And there was some uh, emotional distress that was involved. Right. I thought they would never come back. A few weeks later, they did come back and they knocked on my door and I said, oh, how can you're back? They said, our, L, uh, our person in charge said, you might not like what he has to say, but you have to hear it anyway. Hmm. And I made a public apology to them and we they both began to cry. We reconciled. But what I discovered through that whole experience is that there are many sincere, devoted people, but sincerity must be weighed on sincerity scales and truth must be weighed on truth scales. Right. You can be very sincere in a wrong belief. Very sincere in a wrong belief. But one of the textbooks that I use was called Scripture Twisting. Right. And it is so interesting because when one begins to examine young earth creationism, yeah. I am very persuaded that no scripture twisting is actually going on. Hmm. 
none. Right. There might be in times a little more accommodation to ancient Near Eastern cultures uh, that I would like to see engagement with. But when one reads almost any non-young earth creationist literature, the amount of distortion that one has to mm. account for in the text is phenomenal in my opinion. And yet it is often the case that the young earth creationists are perceived as, as the sect, when in reality, they're the ones not doing the scripture twisting. Yeah, it's like we've been accused of causing division. I've heard this so many times. Oh, you, you, you people cause division. But it when, when people are divided, it's, okay, what is the standard? There's, there's got to be something that you, because if you're not divided, you're united. So what are you united around? Every Christian that I talk to, every you know uh, conservative Christian would say, well, we, we unite around the authority of the Word of God. Okay, well, great. What does that mean? Well, what does that mean? And then who is actually doing that? Because you're right. When I look at the the, the words of God from Genesis 1 to 11, and I look at the young earth creationist interpretation of it, we've even had critics of ours come out and say, well, actually the young earth creationists, the, the hermeneutic. They've done their applying, homework. They've done their homework. It's just that we think that science has disproven that, so we're going to take a different tack. Well, then Scripture versus science, science with a capital S. That's right. So it, it reveals to what I've always said and what the other answers in Genesis speakers have always said, what I've heard Ken always say, obviously, is that their authority is actually not scripture. They're not starting man's with it. Man's word. Man's word versus God's word. So, yeah, that that uh, interesting. So you you met with these Mormons for for quite a while, obviously sharing the gospel with them and and showing them the error in what they they'd come to believe. But what it's also interesting is that at one point in time they asked me to pray and ask if I could receive that what they are saying is true, and it right. forced me to go back to my very foundations. And what I discovered is this. I could not in good conscience accommodate to the request because what it would do is it would make clear to me that I actually believed that there was more than one way to salvation. Mm. And that is a fundamental flaw. Absolutely. That was a touchstone belief. And that's what else it allowed me to do was it allowed me to engage because you cannot, as a mere academic exercise, begin to lean into those teachings and regrettably what i feel is that it is often the case that as most academics lean into some of these fields of inquiry right they don't always realize what they have capitulated to right well this is what i was saying with the cost of compromise because as that fellow ian uh barbara we we you know i read the quote from if you're saying that well as a mainstream christian you can't believe there was you know that death is the result of adam's sin that's a direct attack on the gospel it's also a direct attack on the character of the god that we worship because you know jesus is revealed as the creator in the book of colossians did jesus use billions of years of death and suffering to create and call it very good i mean it just destroys the whole gospel narrative in my mind anyway well one of my peers uh, bethany solander i'm not sure if you're familiar with her work it's no. uh, i got an autographed copy i'm very pleased with that fact <laughs> she does seek to provide a theological underpinning for these arguments and you can find her work on biologos right but one of the things that I wish to raise is simply this. If God is not willing that any should perish, mm -hmm. but that all should come to a saving knowledge of him, what is the function of death? Mm. In other words, what did God deliver us from? The wages of sin 
is death. Correct. And it wasn't just spiritual death. You'll hear that a lot, right? It's just talking about spiritual death. No, it's physical death because God said, from dust you came, from dust you'll return. There's a physical death. Jesus died a physical death on the cross. He didn't die just a spiritual death. We have to look at the full counsel of, of God's word. Well, when Jesus said, uh, that which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit, you must be born again. Adam, Adam, came from the Adama, the ground. Mm -hmm. He was earthly. That's right. And because we come from the loins and lineage of Adam, we ourselves too are carnal by nature. Yep. That is why we need a new representative, a new head of humanity yep. to allow the rebirth and the regeneration to occur. And we hear that in the book of Romans too, uh, the, the first Adam, he was a man of dust, right? It, it's so cohesive. Scripture is so cohesive if you just take it as plainly written. But all these little shenanigans you see, and like we said, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a bad sweater, you know, and you put, you, you, you pull this thing to try to get the thing out, and it keeps going and going and going and going and going. And that's what I've seen the Christian church arrive at is just this pile of thread that the, the world out there is looking at. And, you know, Christians are looking at scripture saying, well, it can mean this. It can mean this. It can mean, well, then it can mean anything. And it doesn't mean anything. I appreciate how you phrase that when you say it can mean anything. Because when I go back to that scripture twisting, many of the things that you raise, such as framework hypothesis or the gap theory yep. or whatever, as a capitulation to science with a capital S, who knew that the gospel or who knew that the book of Genesis or who knew that the scriptures were that flexible? Yeah. Who knew? Right. But it is also interesting from where – actually, go ahead, Kelvin. I think you were about to no, say no, something. No, no, you go ahead. It is interesting because from where I stand mm – -hmm. The cohesive nature of scripture, it testifies to itself and it self-corrects itself. Right. It does not permit certain interpretations simply because it is divinely inspired. Mm -hmm. The divine author of scripture actually puts a fence or a parameter around what one can testify as bearing witness of the apostolic tradition. Mm -hmm. In other words, it is so interesting. One of the most difficult subjects that I ever had to do was on New Testament theology. Right. I had to write a 120 word synopsis of the New Testament with uh, testifying of every single author of scripture. And what continued to come up was how concerned the gospel writers were with false teaching and false mm. teachers. Yep. When one reads young earth creationist literature, one cannot find, in my opinion, any false teaching whatsoever. Right. You can't go to a passage in Scripture and say, look, this passage of Scripture refutes what these young earth creationists are saying, that God created in six days and that it should be taken as a, as a literal day. You, you, you can't use Scripture to attack us. They always use science, so-called. One of uh, my evangelical colleagues recently posted on Facebook a quote from St. Augustine. Right. And allow me to read it. Sure. He says this. Usually, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and this knowledge he holds to as being certain from reason and experience. Mm -hmm. Now, it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel to hear a Christian, presumably given the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, how are they going to believe those books and matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven? 
when they think their pages are full of falsehoods and on facts which they themselves have learned from experience in the light of reason. Mm-hmm. This particularly eminently respected evangelical scholar used Augustine to try to use the authority of science, capital S, yep. to try to present what I would call a false teachings of Scripture. And why I say it's a false teachings of Scripture is simply this. The Scriptures do not testify of those interpretations. Correct. So his argument was this. Okay, Augustine says that Christians, you know, if 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 they're foolish about, let's say, some field of science, I don't know, but let's say um, animal breeding, and they talk to a non-Christian who knows a lot about animal breeding and and what the Christian says is foolishness, this non-Christian knows it's foolishness, then that testifies ill uh, towards the Christian and Christianity because then when they ta- start to talk to them about the gospel, they're not going to believe the gospel because they don't know anything about what they're talking about in science. That's basically the argument, That's correct? That's basically the argument. Correct. But like you said, wh- what they're trying to then take it as is, look, we, everybody knows that evolution's a fact. So therefore, when you try to share the gospel with somebody and you say you don't believe in evolution, then they're, they're going to dismiss your gospel proclamation. But the fact is, evolution is not talked about in scripture. It's not there. It goes against the word of God. It goes against the gospel itself. Because as we've been saying, if God used billions of years of death and suffering to create, called it very good, and the Bible itself says that it was Adam's sin that brought death into the world, but that is contradicted by you, what you're saying. And the final enemy that will be defeated is, is death. death. You, you've just, you, within the gospel proclamation yourself, you're defeating the gospel proclamation by saying God used evolution. How can you have the good news without the bad news? Absolutely. Now, here's the thing that I believe is very, very important to recognize is when it comes to matters of science, mm-hmm. almost everybody proclaims that these are undisputed facts. Right. But when you double check, when you keep going, the understanding of millions of years from astronomy, biology, geology, yep. they are all going back. It's a philosophy. Yep. It's a hermeneutic. It is an interpretive framework. It is not a dispute. It is not an indisputable fact. That's right. And one of my favorite books, people recommend, people ask me, well, what book would you recommend? Yeah, yeah that's good. To and there's one called The Fool and the Heretic. Mm. Now, some people might be familiar with Todd Charles Wood because of Is Genesis History with Del Tackett. Now, Del Tackett right. also went on the Grand Canyon tour. Yep. And as a result of that, he produced a series of videos, Is Genesis History. Yeah, fantastic. Todd Charles Wood is a PhD in biology. He's a one of the few people who are able to speak in a qualified manner to many of these topics. And Daryl Falk used to be the president of BioLogos. And this book, The Fool and the Heretic, I love it Mm -hmm. because oftentimes the young earth creationists would be perceived as as the fool. Right. Well, that's what Augustine's quote is. Oh, man, how can you even remotely think about that? And of course, the evolutionary creationists would often be perceived as as the heretic. Mm-hmm. But this dialogue between the two is so fantastic. Mm. This is a really good entry point to the discussion. Oh, great. Because what it does is it allows people the opportunity to perceive both sides about where they're coming from. We cannot escape whatever point in time of history we are in. Mm-hmm. Now, it used to be that the cross was a stumbling block. Right. You know, it was what to the Greeks and what to the Jews? Well, foolishness and, you know, you know, cursed is one who hangs on a tree. It used to be that the cross was the stumbling block. 
it seems very evident to me now that the stumbling block for the gospel is science with right. a capital S. Mm -hmm. Very much like the the Greek mentality that uh, you know we always make that distinction between Peter's you know preaching to the Jews and and Paul speaking to the Greeks and we we really do have a Greek environment right now which you know basically says man's word has more authority than God's word and we've seen that uh, that you know throughout. Interesting, you mentioned Augustine because as, as you know we talked about big sticks that young Earth creationists get hit with a lot. I find. That when I'm dialoguing with a Christian who's come to believe in millions of years, you 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 commonly hear that refrain we discussed earlier. Yeah, but you know, not every, not all the church fathers. There was many church fathers who didn't believe in in six day young earth creation and all this kind of stuff, and they will throw at Augustine as their big stick. Now, you know, as 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 highly distinguished as as a man can be. They're still a man, so it's it. I I don't care who you quote. To Augustine be honest, Augustine was not writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, but the thing that most people don't understand, and I think other student uh, again students hear this. Oh, oh well, Augustine didn't believe in six six day creation. Well, it's true. What Augustine believed is that God, of course, would have created instantaneously, and so that the days of creation were just accommodated to man. But he actually believed that the earth was very young. And I've got the quote here from uh, the city of God. I'll read it. But they say <clears throat> what they think, not what they know. They are deceived too by these highly mendacious documents, which profess to give the history of many thousands of years, though reckoning by the sacred writings, we find that not 6,000 years have yet passed. So a couple of points. Augustine believed the earth was young. And as far as that quote that you just quoted there from, in that quote, Augustine's saying, look, when the world knows something and the Christian is foolish to what's known, and then they share the gospel, see, that's that brings a bad witness. But do you notice what authority he's quoting here? He's saying that the world out there believes in millions of years, or, or long ages at least, and they're deceived. They've got these documents that profess history of many thousands of years, but the Bible says, and he actually goes to the word of God to say that the earth is not yet 6,000 years old. So in that sense, he's, he's kind of contradicting what's, what's being, what your quote was. And the big takeaway point is Augustine was a young earth creationist. He also believed in a literal Adam and Eve, exactly. in a historical Adam and Eve. So the only thing that when somebody throws Augustine in your face that you can say is, yes, he didn't actually believe that the days in Genesis were literal 24-hour days. That's the only um, um, break in belief in what the young earth creationists believe. Everything else, he believed it. Adam and Eve were real people. The earth was very young. There was no evolution. All those things that we believe, Augustine lines up perfectly there except for one thing he thought the days were just you know an accommodation to humans because god would have created instantly but he didn't get that from scripture no when you look at the book of exodus it makes it very clear and it's interesting from an astronomical perspective mm -hmm. uh, a year astronomically speaking is of course the revelation of earth around the sun right and of course you got a lunar calendar with respect to the moon yeah and of course you got a 24-hour day because of the rotation of the axes right there is no astronomical significance to a week being seven days apart from the testifying of scripture that in seven days god created absolutely and so it is interesting because when one reads exodus it automatically qualifies how one ought to read genesis mm -hmm. because it speaks plainly 
In six days, God created, and on the seventh, he rested and was refreshed. Yeah. Exodus 20.11 to me is like a, it, it's like a silver bullet that I've never heard the old earthers or, or theistic evolutionists really truly be able to overcome um, in any kind of significant way. Because the only thing they can say is, well, we know the eight days in Genesis weren't real days. So when we read Exodus, uh, you know, um, in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, he wasn't really talking about real days, but that's a very poor method of argumentation. For in six days, the Lord created the heavens and the earth all and the fullness therein that's right yeah so we're probably going to need to to wrap up here shortly but i want to hit on this topic of biblical authority i mean you're an interesting person because getting into the academic world going through what you've done i mean you have actually uh, at, at, at different times you know held to different right beliefs than other other than what you've come to now six day young earth creation you've looked at the scripture you've looked at the science you've looked at the the the, the theological uh, implications and stuff like that what's your understanding of what when somebody says well i stand on the authority of the word of god what do you what do you what do you think that means when the scriptures speak it's as though god himself is speaking mm -hmm. to stand on the authority of the word of god is to say what the scriptures testify to is right and true and commands my allegiance. Mm. So interestingly, up until the last 200 years, it seems like the vast majority of Christendom understood what Genesis meant. And yet now you go and talk to Christians and one says, oh no, framework hypothesis. Another says, no, 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 gap theory. That's what that's that's what Genesis means. That there was a gap. Or or there's a new gap theory now. There's two different versions of the a gap theory. A cosmic temple view. Yeah. And uh, one person says, no, 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 God just used evolution. And the other person says, no, 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 it's, it's progressive creation. God created a certain amount of creatures and then they died. And then there was millions of years and that's where we get the fossil record. So it kind of looks like evolution, but it wasn't really. How, how can there possibly be so much divergence in what the plain reading of scripture means if all of these different views have just sprung up over the last 200 years is that what genesis means the last time that you and i spoke i recommended a particular volume by terry morrison mm. it was called the great turning point yeah and what i really appreciate about this volume is it traces out the history of the church's accommodation to geological uh conformity basically right. catastrophism versus uniformitarianism and what is so interesting is that many people will uh, use ronald numbers book the creationist but terry yeah. mortensen's work is impeccably researched and when he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with these other people his research stands true in order to get evolutionary creationism one must have the millions of years of geology right you have to have it now, when it comes to authority, the book that I recommended the last time was this, Coming to Grips with Genesis. Right. And the subtitle is Biblical Authority and the Age of the Earth. And it's it's no small thing that they go back to biblical authority because the question really is a matter of authority. And right. this book, I believe, does such a good job of explicating exactly what you're trying to talk about as far as where do we get our source of authority from. Right. And the last one that I also recommended was this one called Searching for Adam. Hmm. Because when I use my, when I teach my courses, one of the uh, assignments that I always require my students to do yeah. is one on 
who is Adam? Right. And I, I'll actually, this one says Genesis and the truth about man's origins. What I always do is I require this as a textbook four views on the historical Adam. Mm -hmm. Because what I want people to do is I want them to understand some of the pastoral and theological implications of when you hold to this view, here are some of the consequences, or this is the precedent that has been set. Right. In no small ways, when people say, no Adam, and no Adam, no gospel, and no gospel, right. but to no Adam, K-H- uh, K-N-O-W, Adam, is to know the gospel, K-N-O-W. Right. It is so accurate because when Paul presents his message, it is predicated on an understanding of Adam. Mm. And when one looks throughout all of the Old Testament, particularly even Chronicles, the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures, it begins with Adam. <laughs> and even in the New Testament, in the genealogical records, it talks about Adam. Right. It all boils back down to what is the gospel predicated on? It is predicated on a human fall through man's disobedience. That is what the gospel is and why Christ had to come. Yeah. Well, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. It's just uh, absolutely astonishing that so many Bible colleges and seminaries these days are having and, and inviting in speakers from Biologos who's prime aim you can you can go to their website and see is to teach christians to accept evolution as the way that god uh created and under that understanding of course there was no literal adam there was a group of hominids maybe ten thousand of them and god you know there's all sorts of different ways that they or if know, there were a historical adam and eve they were not the first couple right. but among the chosen or among the elect of a representative group right and it was so it, you just brought something out because different scholars have different understandings of how there wasn't a literal Adam and Eve. Even, even amongst themselves, they'll, they'll argue. Well, Dennis Lamoureux would be in stark contrast to, let's say, John Walton. Exactly. So even amongst their, you know, cadre, uh, you, you've got these different views. But the big picture is there was no literal Adam and Eve the way you read it as plainly read in Scripture or written Going in Scripture. Going back to our own hermeneutic. Yes. Now, it is interesting because, pardon me for a minute. Mm -hmm. This little book about the Grand Canyon yep. was written by Tom Vail, and it's the Grand Canyon, a different approach. Right. And they fell into an awful lot of controversy because this was being sold in the um, state shops. Right, right. And when you talked about how there's so many different organizations whose explicit purposes try to refute young earth creationism and try to refute these witnesses. Yep. Well, this book is one of them, The Grand Canyon, Monument to uh, an Old Earth, which right. is, of course, a parallel or a, um, a point in the finger of Steve Austin's book, The Grand Canyon Monument to Catastrophism. Right. But Terry Mortensen wrote a fantastic review of this volume that I have to highly recommend on the Answers mm -hmm. in Genesis website, because when one looks at this volume, its entire explicit purpose is to attempt to debunk young earth creationist right. literature, young earth creationist scholars, young earth creationist geologists. But what I find so interesting is that when one continues to dig deeper, when one continues to really dig through the footnotes, one will find evidence that there is strong reasons to continue to believe in a global catastrophic flood right. that left sedimentary evidence. 
Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, when you look at the Bible, um, you know, I remember Ken saying, what would you expect to find if Genesis 6 to 9 was real? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers. Of course, Buddy Davis wrote a song on it. And my uh, one of my grandsons can, you know, uh, re recite the verses and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's just so plain to understand. You can go to God's word, you can open it up. And what you see there is reflected in, in the world, right? Well, see, Tim Hevel states explicitly in an interview when he uh, talks about the Grand Canyon Monument to an Ancient Earth, he says, well, when one reads the flood, he says, many people don't accommodate to the ancient years and culture. They don't accommodate to the universalistic or hyperbole, uh, uh, the use of hyperbole or rhetoric. And he mentions all the reasons why you can't believe in the global catastrophic deluge. And yet, here's the interesting thing. In my own dissertation, when one looks at the universe, universe universalistic language used in scripture right it is almost always used in reference to the redemption of creation and the redemption of humanity and the redemption of the animals more than the destruction yeah huh. now here's the interesting thing if you want to use the universalistic language of the deluge against a global catastrophic flood does that also mean that the global universal language with respect to the covenant is also local right it's inconsistent it application is very inconsistent in application yeah and the other thing also is is that to say oh well this is an accommodation to the ancient near east well again as i mentioned earlier when you look at the bible among the myths it is stated very explicitly in the in the new testament we do not follow cleverly invented tales right. we do not follow and one of the greek words there is mythos mm. we don't follow myths yep. because what the scriptures are attempting to do is to testify in their own way this is how i want you to understand it and so i i read a quote from tremper along in the last time that we met mm -hmm. and i'd really like to uh quote him again sure. because many people i believe when they read the bible and they use a study guide or they use other voices to help them they get bullied hmm. into believing a particular viewpoint or they get pressured into believing a particular viewpoint and i want to read a quote uh, uh, pardon me this is from old testament commentary survey fifth edition by right. trump along the third and he speaks to this matter and i believe that it's well worth quoting and it's called the use and abuse of commentaries the use and abuse hmm. of commentaries and all a study guide is is a commentary of course yeah it's an opinion there's a right way and a wrong way to use a commentary. Actually, there are two wrong ways. The first is to ignore completely the use of commentaries. Some people do not consult commentaries because they believe that since all Christians are equal as they approach the scriptures, scholars have no privileged insight into the biblical text. The second error is to become overly dependent on commentaries. These people have devoted their whole lives to the study of the Bible. How can my opinion measure up to theirs mm. those holding the first position are wrong because they forget that god gives different gifts to different people in the church not all people are equally adapted to understand the bible and teaching it to others first corinthians 12 12 through 31 mm -hmm. those holding the second position err in the opposite direction they forget that god has given believers the holy spirit the spirit by which they can discern spiritual things first corinthians 2 14 through 16 the right way and here's the point the right way to use a commentary is as a help. We should first study a passage without reference to any helps. Only after coming to an initial understanding of the passage should we consult commentaries. 
neither should we let commentaries bully us. Many times it will be of great help, but sometimes the reader will be right and the commentaries will be wrong. Hmm. That's a great quote. Very, very good. Yeah, it's interesting. There was a quote on Facebook I saw the other day uh, credited to John MacArthur. And I don't know if it was him who said it or not, but it sounded like a John MacArthur quote because it said something like, um, you, you'll you never be become a liberal um, from reading the Bible. You have to go to school to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it definitely sounded like John, but you know, it, 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 speaking to it, I don't think you would arrive at any other conclusion than young earth creationism. If you were living on a desert island, you had no commentaries, you had no one speaking into your life, no Bible colleges, no TV evangelism, whatever, and you just had the scripture, I think you would come to the conclusion if you just kept reading the Bible over and over and over again that God created in six literal days. Uh, around 6,000 years ago, if you can do enough math to, to kind of figure out roughly where we'd, you'd arrive at, that uh, Adam and Eve were real people, that there was a global flood that destroyed everything that wasn't on the ark, you know, uh, the land-breathing animals and, and so on, just the way the young earth creationists say it. And like you said, we're not twisting scripture. You have to look outside of scripture to come to these types of conclusions. Mark Twain once said, never let your schooling get in the way of your education. Yeah, yeah some great quotes from Mark Wayne. Well, brother, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. We're definitely gonna wanna have you back again and again and again. You're like our local, uh, your local um, Old Testament scholar. That's just amazing that, uh, well, that you live so close to us. So You know, Kelvin, uh, one of my peers actually, um, he watched my interview on YouTube yeah. and he made me a t-shirt <laughs> and it says, Dustin Burlette, PhD Genesis genius, <laughs> and I just had to laugh. Well, that's got to be uh, quite the um, uh, the the title, <laughs> the Genesis, Genesis genius. genius. <laughs> well, you can. I be do not self uh, identify <laughs> as a Genesis genius, but well, hey, you're doing a great, great and fine job, brother. So thank you once again for uh, for coming on, and we will definitely have you back. Um, why don't you just give a brief shout out as to where people uh, could come and. Uh, Take in, like, where do you teach, uh, how they can get a, a higher education uh, through through what you do? Well, once again, um, if anybody wants to be in contact with me, mm -hmm. I'm sure that they can get the contact Certainly information contact us through, through Answers, Answers in Genesis. Genesis. Yep. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, you can also contact me through Facebook. Mm -hmm. It's a very open platform, and many people have chosen to do that as well. That's great. And so those are probably the two primary ways. Now, many people have asked for my teaching materials. Many people have asked for some videos and different stuff like that, yep. and often through private messages. I've been able to communicate with them and I've got some PowerPoint slides, I've got some video things and other things like that. So I'm able to often accommodate to what they're asking usually. That's great. Okay. Thanks again, brother. We'll have you back. Thank you. Bill.